Welcome to History Notes, a podcast from the Greensboro History Museum, where we are making history by talking history. History Notes is created by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. History Notes intends to provide instructional resources for our area educators and content for all learners both in and out of the classroom. From K-12 to graduate level students, teachers, administrators, and the overall community, History Notes is for you. Let's examine the individuals, trends, and events that have helped shape who we are today. And don't forget to take notes. It's now time for History Notes. Good day and welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. I'm your host for today, Rodney Dawson. These podcasts are intended to be a resource for our educational community, to include our K-12 classrooms and institutions of higher learning, and any individuals or groups that will find these sessions useful. As a former classroom teacher and now curator of education, uh, I look to find ways to help our educators in the classroom in the form of lesson plans or interactively and highly engaging ways to uh, better the experience for our students. And uh, which leads me to why we approach the guest that we have today. As I was thinking of someone I could contact, I sent out an email, and uh, within a week or so, lo and behold, her office called me back and said that you would be interested in uh, conducting this interview with us, and uh, I think it's appropriate for, especially for the, uh, the audience that we're trying to reach. But we have, a, have with us today none other than Dr. Sharon Contreras, uh, the superintendent of Guilford County Schools. Thank you for joining us th- this morning. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, quickly, how, how are you uh, finding it in North Carolina? Oh, I love it. I okay. think that the only downside is the allergies. <laughs> the allergies. <laughs> what about the snow? The snow, that big snowstorm we just had, well, did you that know, remind you I've of New York? Well, I've been surprised at the amount of snow that we've had. But when you have these 60-degree uh, days like we're having today in the middle of February, I'll take those scattered snow days. I understand. If we have time before the interview's over, I'm going to ask you a question about the snow. I'm going to ask you about the snow if we have time. But many of us are products of our environment. You know, you grew up in Uniondale, New York. I did. Is that part of Long Island? It is Long Island, Long Nassau Island. County. Okay. Um, used to have a hockey team over there, too. Or they used to play there. Did you? Did. No, you did. Yeah, you all had a hockey team. Um, I'm not sure which one, but it was a New York hockey the team. Rangers. The Rangers. The Rangers that played, but they moved. They're gone now. They, they don't play. are gone. Right. They played at the Nassau Coliseum. Okay, I remember that. I remember that. Um, but speaking of Uniondale, speaking of Long Island, um, we're a product of our environment. I'm sure if you had to develop a lesson plan of sorts uh, for yourself, an experience that you garnered from coming from Long Island that you picked up with your family, uh, influences that you have, uh, what would that be? You know, I think uh, the best thing about growing up was the neighborhood and uh, just the street that I grew up on, Union Drive, where my mother still lives to this day. Uh, we were all very close and everybody took care of everybody else. And that was very important. We were all very working class, mm-hmm. working class families. But there was a sense of ownership that uh, all the children would be taken care of and the elderly would be taken care of. And I could tell you who lived in every single house on that street, uh, who the adults were, who the children were, and were very close. Uh, and I think that's sort of what's missing 
today, that sense of community. Now, there's a quote I attributed to you, I read that was attributed to you called Power of Collection. Is that where that came from, the experiences growing up uh, with your family and and the, the community you talked about? Absolutely. You know, I come from a very large family. I have uh, nine brothers and sisters. One of my brothers is deceased now. But Where are you? I'm number seven. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> five girls, mm-hmm. five boys. Uh, so a large family, but also the neighborhood was the family. Uh, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, all family. And um, the community also knew your extended family, your mm. cousins, your aunts, your uncles. And I think, as I just said, uh, there was the sense that we all take care of one another, that we rise and fall together. Um, and that is important to uh, making sure that communities are strong, just the sense of taking care of one another, the responsibility for one another. Okay. You have a series of first in your life, uh, first superintendent who was a woman of color in the state of New York. Was that Syracuse um, school Yes, one, in the large district. So there are what's called the big five, uh, the largest districts in New York State, the urban districts, and there had never been a woman of color as superintendent. So you were the first there. Um, I didn't read where you were the first African-American superintendent here at Guilford County Schools, but the first Latina. Correct. At Guilford County School. So we've had an African-American woman before? No, African-American man. I'm man, the first you. woman. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you're pioneered there. So when someone calls you a pioneer, you know, I ask this question to, to some folks, and they, some of them cringe or some of them just say, well, I never looked at it that way. I had an educator who was the first uh, African-American faculty at UNCG that did a podcast with us. And she said, well, I just never, you know, I never saw myself as a pioneer. But when you hear that, What do you feel? How do you respond? Well, you know, I'm cognizant of it um, quite a bit because uh, people remind me of it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm asked to mentor uh, women all the time, particularly women of color. Uh, There are still so few women of color who are leading large districts. It's still so rare that I am constantly cognizant of uh, the uniqueness of women running large districts. And I coach women all the time. There is not a week that I am not asked to do an interview or to um, have a student shadow me, a uh, graduate student shadow Mm -hmm. me. So I feel it all the time. And then there's the humbling feeling as I know um, so many people have hope that I will uh, change so many things, not really understanding Mm -hmm. uh, how school systems work or how government works. So just seeing me uh, and thinking, wow, she can change so many things for all of us. Um, So I think uh, for many people, I represent Okay. That's a good response. And you touched on something that, uh, so I'll jump ahead a little bit, but I read in the state, 14,000 superintendents, uh, in the, in the, in the United States. Um, but just under 2,000 are women. Mm-hmm. But if you look at teachers abroad, K-12 educators, 72% are women. Yeah. So, Higher than that. It's, it's closer to 80%. Closer yeah. to 80%. Okay. <laughs> now, these are um, uh, Department of Education statistics that I got, and they may be a little dated, but you say it's grown now to 80, closer to 80%. 
So if we if you juxtapose those numbers, 80 percent K-12 educators, education, uh, but uh, under 2,000 out of 14,000 uh, serving as superintendents, are we cognizant of that or uh, in general? I know you are. Uh, and how, what, what's in place to improve that number? Well, we have to have to understand the history of these numbers. So at one time, uh, women were not allowed to even teach. It was the Civil War that allowed us to teach because men had to go fight. Mm. When men came back from the Civil War, they did not want to be on the same level with teachers. They saw that as demeaning. And so we created the principalship headmasters, not because we needed principals or headmasters at that time. We had one-room schoolhouses. There Mm -hmm. was no reason. But to give men a position over women, that is the history of uh, administrators in this country. Um, So there is a history of men being in leadership, even though uh, the women were doing the bulk of the work Mm -hmm. in education. And it hasn't changed much, uh, particularly, and there are many barriers, um, one being just that the work is, uh, the work hours are uh, very long. You work seven days a week. You're in the limelight. Many see it as very political position, mm-hmm. and in many ways it can be. And for women who are still, in many respects, raising children um, and seen as the person who is doing much of uh, the work in the home. It doesn't seem to be a position that is a good match for uh, women who are considered the mothers right. or see themselves primarily as mothers. Uh, so until that change, that perspective changes, uh, it's going to be a barrier, not to mention uh, some of the bias Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes into how we select superintendents, what we believe about women administrators, all of that plays into it too. But a lot of this has to do with just uh, what the position is like and uh, the role of women in society and in home, in the home, and trying to uh, be a CEO of an mm-hmm. organization as well as their responsibilities as home, ta- uh, taking their responsibilities at home. Gotcha. Understood. Well, with um, your strong sense of community, you're coming from a large family, uh, and certainly when you take on a job in Syracuse or you take on a job here at Guilford County, um, you, have to have, you have to have a vision. And uh, just from a little bit of research I've done with you and then hearing you talk today, um, uh, how do you get, what's the challenge in getting people to buy into your vision? I can sit here and talk to you and get a one-on-one vibe and understand where you're coming from, but you can't do that with the 10 plus thousand mm-hmm. employees that work under you. Um, without that strong connection all the time, how do you get, what's the challenge in getting folks to buy into your vision? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's a major challenge of running large organizations, but it can be done. Uh, I think that you have to really work closely 
with your managers and you have to be highly visible. So people joke with me all the time that, my goodness, you're everywhere and you just pop up and you're in schools and, you know, you show up in churches and synagogues and, um, you know, in random places because people have to know your heart. Mm -hmm. And it was a lesson I learned because as a woman, I um, was very afraid for people to be um, close to me, to make personal connections and for people to judge me. And so I would just um, try to continue to be intellectual and just cite data. And I started to learn that that wasn't working well for me. So I started to just be myself and connect with people. And I learned that I could also be intellectual, but help people see who I was, what I believed in. And that works well. So I work hard to connect with my managers and to help them to understand how important it is to make sure that vision is uh, drilled down into the organization and not vulgar. Virga is the rain in the clouds that never touches the ground. It's I'm glad the scientific you explained that too. Because yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I work closely with them, but I also um, just believe that we should be out in the community uh, working with those that we serve. Um, it's what Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, said, the power of proximity. You have mm. to be close to the issue, to the problem in order to resolve it. So I can sit here and theorize about what children need, what families need, but if I don't actually talk to children, talk to families, and actually go out to homes and mm. in the neighborhoods, I'm really just guessing. I don't really know what they're facing every day. That's a good philosophy to have. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a small break, uh, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, what I think is a very lofty goal uh, in this age of No Child Left Behind. I uh, wonder how hard it is to achieve. I believe it can be done. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question about uh, something that I read attributed to you and in, in this goal that we have in mind. So we'll come right back after this. You are listening to History Notes, a production of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To discover and learn more about the discussion and our exhibits, visit the Greensboro History Museum located at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro, or visit greensborohistory.org. That's greensborohistory.org. Now let's get back to History Notes. All right, welcome back to History Notes. Uh, again, we're here with Dr. Sharon Contreras. She's the superintendent of Guilford County Schools. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson, curator of education at the Greensboro History Museum. Uh, please stop by and visit us. Um, you know, you, my wife says, uh, I got started late, but I love to learn, you know, and I'm big on education. I believe it's the new currency. I used to tell my students that all the time. Um, but she says, I just won't stop because I went back to get my, uh, I'm working on my dissertation now. Uh, but you have uh, uh, Binghamton. Is that where you got your undergrad? Uh-huh. All right. Then you have two masters. And then three. you have three. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I cut you short. <laughs> and then you have your, your Ph.D. or EDD? Ph.D. Ph.D. So are you going back? Actually, I am. I applied to North Carolina A&T to get an MBA just because, you know, I feel sort of um, – out of the loop here when I'm 
uh, at A&T mm-hmm. in, in Greensboro. You know, everyone's saying Aggie Pride. I want to say Aggie Pride, too. <laughs> I, so I can say it, I say, Aggie hey, Pride. I can add one more. I have six mm-hmm. degrees, but I can add one more. That's all yeah. right. Yeah, you got to get the homecoming experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're going back. So, um, uh, But that's you, you know what it is with education. It's very, um, I used to say I, had, I always worked for some good principles, but it's very statistically driven. You know, the age of no child left behind, the high stakes testing. A lot of your promotions are depending on how well you do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the outcomes are determined by test scores. Uh, but, yeah, I want to read this to you. Um, I read a statement attributed to you where you said it's not about being able to pass a state test. That's an indicator, but it's about improving student life outcomes. If a student is not able to take care of themselves or their families or contribute to our democracy, then we have failed as educators. I believe that's a wonderful statement. Uh, and I asked you earlier about the challenge of getting that vision out. And you talked about, you know, being in close proximity with your managers and the, and the teachers and, the, and, and your, your students and the families. Uh, how do you do this? Yeah, so... You know, uh, interestingly enough, I I do believe a student should be able to pass a test, but I believe we've become hyper-focused on mm. the assessments, not understanding that the reason we are pushing mastery is so that students can live a quality life. And I try to get teachers to refocus because sometimes they are so demoralized, Mm. Um, not just teachers, but educators in general. And so I want them to know what you do really matters. And when we do our jobs well, we change the life trajectory for our students and the life outcomes. What we are doing is trying to make sure that we improve Uh, the quality of life for our students, that we give them a hope and a future, that we give them the possibility of living a middle-class life with dignity by making sure they have the knowledge and skills to actually get a good middle-class job. And we actually help them to be critical thinkers so that they can participate Mm. in this great democracy um, as a man, as a woman. Um, And I think that it's really um, it's it's difficult to stay focused on that. And many educators they go to work every day, but they're not thinking about uh, the end result for the students. And I try to get them to focus on that every day. Do you miss being an English teacher? Yeah, I do. But I read every single day, and I do uh, participate in you know book clubs and book groups and every once in a while I still teach you know I it won't mm-hmm. be a full course but I'll teach a course and I enjoy that very much all right can I throw a curveball at you yes you're in a classroom you've worked on a lesson plan for a week or so and you got it ready you got a class of 32 34 students in mm-hmm. it, and it's crammed and you can't get through the lesson because you have some behavior issues from mm-hmm. two or three members of the classroom. Uh, and so that drains your day. And then you have to you have car rider duty after school. And so you're out there, you rush to go to car rider duty, you come back in, and you have a staff meeting. And then after the staff meeting, you may have a committee meeting, and then you have to get prepared for the next day. You talked about teachers being demoralized. What's your piece of advice to help that teacher that's going through that? 
So the first thing is to really uh, build relationships with those uh, students that are having the discipline problems. And, you know, I often use the parable of the lost sheep uh, because what I hear is the opposite of that, that we should um, not lose everybody for that one or two instead of going after the one or two and saying, okay, I'm going to leave you all here and I'm going to go get those one or two because, um, you know, we we can never, ever lose any student because when you go after those students and actually spend time with them, you actually can make a difference for those students and often the behavior will change. Sometimes it will not. I acknowledge mm. that. But I think that we have to spend more time building relationships. And there is so much research on this that if we spend that time, we won't spend as much time later on. So it's time-consuming up front. And I want teachers to know they should not give up on those students, that um, many of the students who uh, give us a hard time later on they invoke our names. I remember Miss Contreras. Mm-hmm. I remember Mr. Reed. And I gave them a hard time, but they said this to me and said that. And they go on to be great human beings. Mm-hmm. So um, don't give up. I know it's exhausting, but um, this this is hard work. Teaching mm-hmm. is hard work. It is. It is. I can attribute to that. What's a good day like for Dr. Contreras, GCS superintendent? Um, A great day for me is when I am in schools and teachers feel good about the work. The principals are out uh, in the classrooms, and I see uh, students uh, really engaged in learning, and there is joy in uh, the schools. I get really excited when I see joy in our schools. I think that... uh, the classrooms and our schools are not joyous places anymore, and they should be. And I think they should be places of exploration uh, where students uh, are not and teachers are not feeling, boy, I really have to get through this lesson. I have to get through the scope of sequence. But really, we're, we just stop and um, have fun with learning and are exploring and um just making the best of every single day and enjoying it. And that makes me happy when I'm in schools uh, every single day. So uh, I look for that when uh, the teachers are smiling and the principals and the students. That makes me very happy. Okay. What's a good day for Sharon Contreras? As uh, as a person? As a person. I think when there's balance, and I think that's really hard for CEOs to have balance. So when I'm taking care of myself and I have a good day at work and I get home at a reasonable time, I don't have a headache and mm. I get to the gym or take a dance class and I spend time with my own family and check Jonathan's homework and mm. maybe watch a movie with him, uh, that's a good day for me. I think I spend uh, far too many hours at the office and mm-hmm. uh, have not quite figured out the balance yet, but I'm working on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm um, in school myself, right? Uh, educational leadership. Got about working on my dissertation now. So maybe by 
mid-2020, I'll be done. Uh, but I have no interest in being a superintendent, no interest in being a principal, but I do want to work in uh, education. Um, you have other aspiring superintendents, other aspiring administrators. Uh, before we get you out of here, can you give me a piece of – talk to them about some of the expectations they they should have and some of the preparations they should make uh, when they go into this hierarchy of education. Uh, as an aspiring superintendent? Superintendent, administrator, of some, of some, a principal. Uh, this job is about relationships, mm-hmm. and it uh, is far more political than educational in some sense. So it is about making sure that you build relationships with uh, community and uh, with lots of uh, elected officials, community members, uh, members of the faith community with parents and educators uh, so that you can get good outcomes for students. Uh, Your job is not a chief academic officer. It's not uh, the curriculum. It is about uh, resources primarily Mm. and about managing very large, complex organizations. And uh, it's not what many people expect. And I think many people are disillusioned when they get into the position because Mm. they thought they would be doing a lot more educational work, and that's actually the work of your staff. Uh Now, you are in schools a lot, but your work isn't primarily educational. You're doing a lot of community engagement and working to bring resources to students. Okay. Well, you know, we certainly thank you for uh, taking the time to come here and visit us today, and I think uh, it's going to be beneficial not only for uh, the museum audience, but for the uh, the educational community uh, in general. And so we want to thank Dr. Sharon Contreras. We wish you the best. Um, I, I think you've done a great job. I hope we, we can keep you. And uh, I'm a personal fan of yours because you stopped and took a picture with my daughter two years ago. And, so, <laughs> and you made See, her day. See, people remember <laughs> <Yeah>. those things. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for History Notes. This podcast developed by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Uh, you can check out the podcast on our website. You simply go to greensborohistory.org and then the tab Discover and Learn, and you look for the podcast, and you can choose uh, this podcast uh, we're attributing to uh, the women who have uh, made contributions uh, locally here in uh, our community. And we've been a uh, great pleasure to have our guest here, Dr. Contreras. So please join us next time for our edition of History Notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to History Notes, a podcast from the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. The Education Department offers several resources for learners both in and out of the classroom. Learn more at greensborohistory.org. Then select the Discover and Learn tab at the top of the homepage. You may schedule a tour, a field trip, or reserve an education trunk for your next lesson. Daily visitors can stop by the museum at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro. Admission is free. You've been listening to History Notes, where we are making history by talking history. Tune in next month for a new topic, new discussion, and new insight. This has been History Notes.